You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So I've said for a couple of weeks in this series, this being part three, that wisdom is really a combination in the book of Proverbs of two realities that you live with. The first reality is to realize that God has a created order in this world, the way he has set this world up, and that I live in harmony with that. So gravity works. So half of the foolish things you saw in that video were because somehow... These dudes thought they would defy gravity, right? You knew before they even did the dumb thing they did that it was not going to turn out well, okay? So there's a limitedness of human beings that way, but there's not just a physical order to the universe. There's also a moral and ethical order, and God has weaved that through from beginning to end. And when you're in harmony with God's creation, order, things go well. When you work against the grain, you get splinters. And that's what happens to a lot of people as well. So there's a created order in this world that we are know that we're the createe. God is the creator. I think I just made up a word. Uh, we are the one created. But there's also a second part of wisdom, and that is that we see and understand the brokenness and fallenness of this world. The fact that the world doesn't always work out right. And so it's not just a quid pro quo. I do this and I get that all the time. Sometimes when I do the right thing, bad things still happen. That's part of the brokenness. So I recognize the brokenness in myself. I recognize the brokenness in relationships. I recognize the brokenness even in nature, that that happens. And growing in wisdom is growing in those two things together. Okay, We also said Proverbs is one of those books that's not supposed to be just read on your own because that would be kind of like, oh, I know it. I can get it. Do you understand how that works? That's already a know-it-all attitude is the opposite of wisdom. So it's supposed to be read in community. And that's why we emphasize here at um, Thrive home huddles. Home huddles where we gather together with others and we learn from each other. We support each other, we care for each other, we love each other, and we um, grow from each other. So Proverbs is to be read in community and to be understood through the wisdom of other people are wiser than me. There are some really wise people in this congregation, okay? And they, there's a lot to learn from each other. I learn all sorts of things from people all the time. Andy was a good example this week, just how her posture was going into the surgery, seeing her before the surgery, and seeing how she was at peace with God, knew God was in control. That's such a powerful witness, right? So this week, too, by the way, I'm going to point out, we, we are starting another huddle on Tuesday night, not this coming Tuesday, but the Tuesday after at Corinne's place here at Estero Oaks and Samuel is going to help facilitate it over there. So if you're interested, that's a new one starting, and uh, you can get involved in that in like 10-ish days from now. All right. The brokenness of technology. Okay. So how do you learn wisdom? You know? So many people say, okay, great. I want to become wise, so teach me the technique, John. Teach me the skills. What are, 
What's the hack so I can just get to wisdom right away? Um, tell me the four steps I need to do. And if I do these things and get this skill down, I'm going to become wise. And that's the problem with the 21st century in the United States. We think wisdom is something I can kind of download. Okay, Wisdom is something I can just kind of get this skill or this knowledge, and boom, automatically, ting, I'm wise now. Doesn't work that way at all. And so when we come to the book of Proverbs, sometimes we get really frustrated because Proverbs is not going to tell you, here's the skill. You do this, and you'll become wise. Here's the technique. You follow this. This is the method to wisdom. It's not about that. Proverbs focuses on character more than skills or knowledge because character actually matters. Character matters more than any skill you can have or any knowledge you can have. And this is so contrary to our 21st century America uh, way of thinking. In fact, I've brought this up a couple times here in almost every year in my leadership class that I teach at FGCU when I ask about character, skill, and knowledge because what is... The majority of students will say a leader is someone and they describe a characteristic. They don't describe a skill, they don't describe knowledge, but they describe characteristic. Then I look at them and say, where do you learn character here at the university? All your classes are on skills and knowledge. And yet you're saying to me that a good leader is one who has good character. And that's the case. We are so focused in our society on what's your skill set? How much do you know? What degree do you have? None of which, according to the scriptures, will make you wise in and of itself. So we get frustrated because Proverbs doesn't focus on skills and knowledge. Proverbs focuses on character. And Proverbs basically describes the characteristics of a wise person. So. If you are faithful, if you're dedicated, if you are hardworking, if you are all of these, then you are on the path towards wisdom. Because these characteristics, this disposition, this attitude brings about, if you are teachable, then you will become wise. So they focus on what you need to become as a person in character first. Okay, And of all of the characteristics, we're going to focus on the most important one today, I believe. And that is humility. Humility is more important than any knowledge or skill you can ever have, according to the book of Proverbs, for you to become wise. Yeah. And it's, boy, is it lacking these days. I'm just amazed. I, I, I guess I shouldn't be amazed, but I'm kind of shocked. You know, you look at any media source. It's all about self-promotion, right? It's all about um, looking good. It's all about spin. It's all about techniques or skills or power or I'm the greatest or look at me and look, of course, you know, everything. And it's like, oh, my gosh. I, it just is nauseating to me to see. But I might be nauseated because I'd like to say that. I mean, you know, we'll get into that. It's amazing how the opposite of humility is pride. And pride doesn't like other people being proud. <laughs> OK. So let's list, uh, we're going to read a few um, Proverbs right now, kind of in the order that they occur in the book. 
um, and then kind of go through this today, what, uh, the, what stupid pride looks like, okay? When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So today, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what stupid pride is what stupid pride does, and how to overcome stupid pride. So what stupid pride first is, I kind of gave a hint already, but pride is needing to be better than other people. Pride is competitive by nature. That's the way it is. So in Proverbs eleven twelve, it says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. That is, whoever kind of like is one-upping the neighbor. Okay, that's what pride does. It's always looking around at a comparison. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, has a great chapter on this. I can't quote the whole thing. Thankfully, you're, okay, yes, please. Some of my quotes are long. This one I try to chop down. This is what he says. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature, while other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Have you ever noticed it? How competitive we can be? Probably in some discussions, and you, you start telling your story about, oh, man, I had this happen to me. And then somebody, oh, but yeah. And then when I, that happened, and then it's like, oh, my gosh, we're one up in each other. It can be in the direction of, well, when I was sick, I was even worse sick than you, Hunter. And then, Hunter, no, no, I threw up three times more than you did. You know, it's just the stupidest stuff. But there's this drive in us to always be competing with others. Why? Why are we so driven to be in competition with each other? And I think there's underlying all this is this reality. We're always figuring out how we can justify our own existence. Why am I here? And the best way to do that is to be better than you at something. So that's why I'm here. Uh, Oswald Bayer says this, we are always called to legitimate our existence. And I don't know, it doesn't have to be just in the court of law. Actually, the court is open everywhere. The jury is always out, and you're always being questioned by others, by society, and by yourself. You're always looking at yourself going like, am I good? Why am I here? What am I worth? How am I worth? How can I prove myself to myself and to others that I'm 
valuable or worth it or important or big or stronger or whatever. And the best way to do that is to be better than somebody else. Always trying to justify ourselves. Always making a case, amassing some set of a resume to show other people in one way, to create a record that I really count, that I matter. Now, Arthur Miller, the playwright, um, he understands this quite well. He wrote in a play called After the Fall with this character named Quentin. And Quentin looks back at his life and he says, you know, more and more I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. And what a good lover, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyways. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Now what Arthur Miller is saying, which I'm amazed at, but he's dead on, is that even if you don't even believe in the existence of a god or an outside judge, you're still judging yourself. And you keep trying to, you, everyone, whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they believe in a god or don't believe in a god, are still trying to come up with the right verdict, prove their worth, their innocence, their value, their whatever place. And yet, Arthur Miller said nothing new. Paul, 2,000 years before in the book of Romans, he talked about the Gentiles who did not have God's law, and yet he, they, he says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bearing witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's a continual spin cycle. Am I good enough? Am I worth it? Doesn't happen just in college where you're looking at grades. Or uh, it's happening on Facebook every day you post something. How many likes are you getting? Right? Or Instagram or anything else. Every piece of social media is another way to try to justify why I'm better than. And no wonder, that's why I call it anti-social media. It doesn't actually build up community. It's tearing it down. So that's the first characteristic, that pride is always competitive, always needing to be better than someone else. But there's also a second characteristic that's maybe even a little more sinister, and that's pride needs to take God's place in your own life. And this comes out in uh, the Proverbs 16, verse 18, where um, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That word for haughty, you might not use that word too often. Haughty. It's kind of fun. Uh, the Hebrew word is goba. What's fascinating about this use of this word is that elsewhere in the Bible, that is actually a quality of God. It's God's position of his lofty authority and position. So, for instance, Job in, says this, is not God high in the heavens? And that, that's the word for goba or haughty. It's not a bad quality for God, but it is for me. And what it's basically saying, and Proverbs is saying, is I want to take God's place. I don't want God to be God. 
I think I can do a better job of being God than God does. I want to be in the position of high authority, have everybody in the world. Pinky in the brain. How many of you have ever seen that, uh, right? That's basically right there, pride in a nutshell. I'm going to rule the world. And then the world's not even big enough. I need to rule the universe. Never quite works out. So Lewis Meads says in his book, Love Without, Within Limits, he says, pride in a religious sense is an arrogant refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, relying on one's own resources. Never does pride want to pray for strength, ask for grace, plead for mercy, or give thanks to God. Pride is the grand illusion, the fantasy of fantasies the cosmic put on. So pride also wants to take God's place. And thirdly, pride is hyper self-aware centered. The proud are constantly taking their own pulse, checking themselves out, comparing themselves, looking, just totally wrapped up in self, okay? Um, this comes out in Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. That's a proud person right there. I trust what I think about myself above everyone else, kind of narcissistically so. So when anybody comes to me and gives me advice, I don't take the advice as information. I take it as an insult. What are you telling me to do that? Because it is taken as a personal attack that I, you're thinking I'm deficient. I don't think so. Do you understand how that works? Isn't it amazing how easily we put off other people's constructive criticism, they don't have to say anything negative. They just have to, hey, you know, there might be a, no, I think I know what I'm doing. Smeeds goes on about pride. He says, the fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center. So we learn to swagger, to bluff, to use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God. Life becomes a campaign to use people to support oneself and a constant battle to avoid having others use oneself that way. That's worth kind of thinking about for a while, okay? That is. You know, so what you see is not what you get with most people. Have you ever noticed that? You get somebody who says, oh, and they come across as big and brash and confident. They are insecure and self-centered on the inside. I don't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> then why did you have to say that? <laughs> did you notice? So when I feel snubbed or ignored by somebody, it's not the fact that they snubbed me, but it's the fact that I, uh, my pride is involved in that. When I feel offended because somebody gives me advice, it's not because they gave me the advice or they've been obnoxious in doing it. It's because I don't want to need advice. And by the way, this means that when we talk about low self-esteem, that isn't humility, by the way. That's another form of pride. 
because the person is self-centered. The jury is still out, and they're still being trying to come up with a verdict. But the problem is, when somebody has low self-esteem, all the evidence they're grabbing to make their case are convicting them that they're not that great. They're losing at the trial but they're still so self-centered about it. So whether we're positively trying to build ourselves up or we're tearing ourselves down because, oh, look at me, I'm so blah, 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 that's still self-centered and pride is still involved in both. So that's what pride is. That's what stupid pride is. Now what does stupid pride do, okay? What stupid pride does. And Proverbs that we read, they don't mince words. They say it sp specifically. It says this, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. It doesn't say pride is followed sometimes by destruction. It says pride comes and then after that, destruction. It is always guaranteed. It's clear. And why is pride inherently destructive? That's the question that we have to ask. And there are basically two reasons, practical and theological. Practically, pride being so competitive, pride being so full of itself, pride saying not taking advice, pride doesn't learn. And you keep making the same mistakes again and again and again. So Proverbs 13.10 says, by insolence comes nothing but strife. In other words, the proud person's always arguing with you, always competitive, always one-upping you. They never learn. And if you don't learn, you'll keep making the same mistake. And if you don't learn and you always kind of insult back and forth to someone else, then guess what happens next? You lose friends, you lose connections, and you're left all by yourself. Who wants to be around a proud person? But I think a deeper and more, um, more uh, just kind of scary reason is the theological one. Proverbs 15, 25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. And this little proverb highlights a theme that you can find from Genesis through Revelation in the Bible about how God seems to have a preference, doesn't just seem, has a preference for the poor and the outcast and the lonely and the loser and the last. It's fascinating how that works throughout the scriptures. You can see it all the way back in Genesis where God prefers Abel over Cain when in all older cultures, the law of primogeniture, which is the firstborn gets the goods. And, and God in that culture reverses the order. And the secondborn is the one he prefers. Or Jacob over Esau. Or Abel over Cain. Or you could see it as well, even later in um, the book of Exodus. Moses is younger than Aaron. Or when we get to the kings, David is the last of nine sons. The, the scrawny runt of the litter. And Jesse didn't even think about him 
as a possibility for being the king. But God chooses the least and the last, the boy who didn't have any friends, the girl who seems to be on the outside, and that's who he chooses. So we see Hannah and Rahab and Sarah. Isn't that amazing what God does? There's a deep theological reason for all of this. And it comes back to how we understand ourselves and how we understand our God. If you look through the scriptures from the beginning to the end, you start to realize if you get the fullness of who our God is and who he is at heart, you come to understand that God is a community of three persons of equal power, strength, might, and glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that Trinity. When I was younger and we heard the term Trinity, I thought, okay, so you're trying to explain to me the unexplainable, and we come up with this formula. It's not about the math, and it's not about the numbers. It's really about the essence of love and community. And the early Eastern church fathers, as they studied the scriptures, and they studied who God was, and they understood through the person of Jesus and what God accomplished there, and through the giving of the Spirit, they understood that God at his essence always is glorifying, each person of the Trinity is glorifying and loving the other two rather than the self. And that that is who God is at his heart. They use this term called perichoresis, which is like, what? Of course, the Greek fathers would use a Greek term. And peri means other or around. And choresis is where we get the word choreography. So it's kind of the dance of how I am giving glory to the Son and to the Spirit. And the Spirit is giving glory and witnessing to Jesus always, and to the Father, and, the, and Jesus is always glorifying his Father, and never, he's doing the Father's work, he's not doing his own. And you find this perichoresis in God, so God has set up the universe in characteristic fashion in accordance with who he is at his heart, which is other-centered love, other-giving love. And when we who are created in God's image, do not reflect that, we are on a collision course with our God. We are also in a collision course with God's future because that is what eternity is going to be, this wonderful dance where we aren't focused on, look at me, but wow, look at this, look at that, look at these individuals. Isn't this wonderful? Look at our God. We're other-focused. You're on a collision course with God if you are proud. Whether we see that in the world right now or not, whether in our culture we elevate those who are the most proud and the most uh, more people who are takers and self-praisers than ever, doesn't really matter. Whether corporations do it, politicians do it, um, organizations do it, even when it happens in the church. And I am really disgusted more about the Christian church that is self-promoting, like, look at how great we are. That is not. No, the one thing that should be true here at Thrive and true at any Christian church is look at how great our God is. That's the underlying message. 
Now look at how good that preacher is. Look at how good the, the band is. Look at how good this is or that is. It's like, look at how God is. That's the center. So that's what pride does, and that's how serious it is. Okay? So how do you overcome stupid pride? What's the antidote? And Proverbs comes up again and again and says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So the antidote to pride is what humility really is. Now, if I'm trying to gain humility, it's like, oh, look, I'm growing in humility. Do you understand what happens right there? Somehow, a lot of people have always thought humility is this, like, Virtue you gain or try to achieve. And the more you try to achieve it, it just becomes another version of pride. It's really, Lord, I'm so humble now. Of course, you're going to have to answer my prayer. <laughs> what? Yeah, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I love this. Uh, Walter von Levenich wrote a book that I actually read for my dissertation. And in it, he said, humility is not one virtue among other virtues, but it is, in the first instance, a renunciation of all virtuousness. Humility is the awareness of the fact that we cannot stand before God on the basis of our virtues. So when Jesus came, no wonder it was the sinners and tax collectors that were welcomed in because they realized their position and accepted who they were and let God be God because they knew they would never be able to save themselves. And why the religious people were still holding on to their pedigrees and their phylacteries and their prayers and they were trying to justify themselves. Truly hum humble people don't talk about their humility. They talk about their needs, their weaknesses, their brokenness and they praise their God. And when you read the stories of the Bible, like I said, what you will find from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end, you will never find a character who had his act together or her act together who should have been on top of things or should have gotten what they deserve. What you will find again and again are characters who are broken and flawed, and they come to their senses, and God uses them. He uses the outsider and the opposite of what we expect. And I know so many times Sunday schools turn those stories into, look at the great qualities David had, and of course God blessed him. But that is not the story of David's life, if you actually read it, nor of any character in the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible who's worth following, and that is Jesus. So like I said, the God, God chooses the girl no one wanted and the boy everyone had forgotten to be the very people who are the center of his plans. And boy, does it take humility to receive that. And God chooses to do that so that you and I never try to rest our entrance into God's presence or blessings based on our works, our efforts, our understanding, or even our level of humility. There is nothing... Humility is not actually something. It is knowing my nothing that I've got to offer God. And God loves to give everything to those who have nothing. So, 
Okay, I lost my place. Humility. Yeah. Um, that's how God works. I love this quote um, from Vitor Westhal. He's a Brazilian theologian. And he said, God saves us when we are at the stage of humbleness, brokenness, and depravity because that is when God reaches us, not because we have made our own way down there, but rather because we are no longer in denial over our condition. Humility is not a technique to get God's grace. It is rather the admission of one's own wretchedness. It is about being plain and honest to ourselves in the world by naming things for what they are. Of all places, the Christian church, home huddles, etc., are the place to be honest with the way things really are. It scares the living daylights out of every one of us to be honest with ourselves about who we are and let other people see it. And yet that is exactly when God's love and grace and mercy come in. It's amazing. That's where you have an intimate relationship with God and with others because God loves you. He knows it already anyways. You're not fooling anybody. At least not God. And I know a lot of you get it. I know a lot of you believe this. And I know, but then we get out in the world. I get out there and I get onto the campus and I see all these professors with all these degrees and I start thinking, oh, I've got to, got to prove myself. And you get out there and you're in the workplace and your boss says, or this person does, and you've got to kind of like start creating your resume of why you're worthy to be promoted or all this stuff. And we start playing this game again and again and again to build that resume. So how do I stop doing that so I can actually be real? Not that I'm trying to be lazy at work or any of that stuff. Now, I'm not talking about that, but where it doesn't create this prideful self-justification going on. And it comes back again to that phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fact that you start to hear the gospel, that you are saved by God's grace, no matter what. And what God thinks of you, that you are, the jury is out. The verdict is in. It is over. It is finished. It is accomplished. Not guilty. There is no need to justify yourself because you are justified. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are absolutely free and innocent and clean and loved. And there is no other word that has to be said to you. Nobody can take it away from you. Nothing could ever separate you from what God has already done and spoken over you in Jesus Christ. The jury is out, or the, the verdict is in. The trial is over. The victory is won, and we are done playing the game. And again and again, every day, I recall that. You know, Timothy Keller said what he does, um, he's a retired pastor from New York. He takes a little note puts it in his pocket. And whenever he starts to see, feel anxious or upset or starting to wonder if, where he fits in or starting to play these games and he catches himself, he pulls it out. All it says is, the verdict is done. You know, it is finished. It is accomplished. Nothing to do. Court is adjourned. And he puts it back in his pocket. It is accomplished. Those were Jesus' last words on the cross. There's nothing more to be done. 
somebody who started to understand this probably better than any, and he was judged by everybody and ridiculed, and especially even by the Christians, like in Corinth, was Paul himself. And this is what he said at the, uh, in, in his first letter to the Corinthians, but with me it is a very small thing. I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's the fear of the Lord, understanding it's what God has said in the verdict he has made on me and court is adjourned, the rest of it goes away. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's when you are actually in the state of humility. You take what God says about you more important than what you would ever say about you or anyone else. The antidote to stupid pride is then the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this series. Thank you for the, the book of Proverbs and, and just the amazing way we can read it in community and learn. Um, forgive us, Lord. <laughs> Every one of us knows how foolish and stupid we've been and how prideful and how self-centered and how we just keep getting wrapped up in it. Let us see you, Lord Jesus, your beauty, your glory, your amazing grace through your death and resurrection that it is accomplished, it is finished. The court is adjourned. The trial is over. We are not guilty. We are justified. We are, will be glorified, and you will have us forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. We pray, Lord, that um, no one and no verdict that any human being can ever, nothing will separate us from your love. We know that. Let us live that out and be real with each other and be real with the world and show them the real Jesus. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.